for me, when you're hearing this, it's Sunday, and uh, with the same kayach, with all the kayachas of coming from Shabbos Gimel Tammuz, to inaugurate this new Chumash Chitas broadcast. Bring brachas and bring the Rebbe Nachas. So, Sunday begins Parshas Chukas. Today's Chitas is from the beginning of the Parsha, Perik Yutes, all the way through, of course, we always check for us to see if it's long, right? Through Pasuk Yud Zayin, 17 Pesukim, and a number of Rashis. We will try to do this quickly and see how it goes. So Hashem is speaking to Moshe and Aharon, saying, Zos Chukas HaTayra. I'm now going to give you the Chayk of the Tyra, which is the laws of Paraduma. So this is a Chumash Rashi session, so obviously there's lots of Mepharshim, there's lots of Chasidis, there's lots of Madrashim, and we're not going to touch any of them because we'll never have any time because we're trying to get through the Rashi. So, Zos Chukas HaTayra. So the question obviously is, why is Hashem introducing the mitzvah by saying, this is the Chayk of the Tayra? It's a mitzvah. There, there are 613 of them. Why on this one specifically, this mitzvah paraduma, does it have an introductory statement as this is the chayk of the Torah? So the answer Rashi gives is because specifically for this mitzvah paraduma, the satan or the nation say, what's going on here? What, what this is this an, an irrational commandment? There's no reason. You took cow and you burnt it and you're sprinkling the ashes with the water and then you become pure. So the Torah says, yes, this is a chayk. Chuka, from the word chayk. As we know, there's edus, chukim, and mishpatim. A chayk is a command that's irrational. It is, let me say that more correctly. A chayk is a command that's super rational. This is a chayk. Gezerah it's a gezera, and you don't have the right to question it. I have to just stick it on the hostages. I'm sorry, but how can one say that without? The Rebbe Rayat says that really every single mitzvah we do, we have to approach as a chayk. Eidus is a testimony, like Shabbos. Testimony to creation. Mishpat is a rational law, like thou shalt not steal. And a chayk is paraduma. Or many others. Shatnas, pashras. When I do a chayk, I know I have no clue why. It's just because God says. When I'm doing something that seemingly makes sense to me, and I seemingly understand the reason, it's a chayk. Do it just because Hashem said. Vayikhu elecha, the Pasuk says, and they should take to you the para'aduma. Rashi questions this, and when I read the Rashi questions, what we really mean is the person learning Chumash questions, Rashi's answering our question. So what does it mean that they should take to you? It's, 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 not, it's not to you. The paradigm is not brought to the Kayin Gadolaharon, and the paradigm is not brought to Moshe. So what they should take to you, the paradigm? So Elecha, to you, and it's also singular. In other words, if it meant to you in the plural, like to you, Moshe, and Aharon, it would be Alechem, to use. But it's to you. So the main you here is Moshe. The Rashi says that it's being taken to Moshe, not tangibly, 
but connected to Moshe. That we say, this is the parah that Moshe made in the Midbar. That all future paradumas connect to this paraduma that Moshe made in the Midbar. Why? Because, as of course the laws are explained in the Rambam, that every paraduma has to have mixed in their ash, ashes from the original one prepared by Moshe. So there are a total of ten paradumas. Of course, the tenth will be made from Melch HaMashiach. But all of the nine made thus far, starting with the first made by Maisha, the other eight all had in it from the ash of Maisha. So every cow's ashes, every paraduma is ascribed back to Maisha. That's why we get Elecha. The third Rashi here, the Pasuk says, para aduma tmima, a pure para aduma. So I would think, okay, a pure para aduma means she's got to be Tomim, you know, completely without any blemish, which I'm used to because I know every carbon can't have a blemish. But then the Pasuk goes on to say, that doesn't have a blemish. Um, wait a minute. What's the function of the word tmima, pure without a blemish, when the Pasuk explicitly continues to say, Asher that doesn't have a blemish. So Rashi explains, Aduma Tmima, what we mean, and that's why in the Dibra Hamaschal you have not only the word Tmima, which is the word we're questioning, but the word Aduma Tmima, because Rashi's comment is on both, that the word Tmima is actually modifying the word Aduma, meaning it should be Tumim perfect in its Aduma, in its redness, which means, same as long, that even if there are two black hairs, Rashi says, well, for that matter, any other color hairs, blue would also be a problem, or green, or gray. If there are two hairs of a different color than the red, it's disqualified. It's not pure in its redness. If there was one hair, it's still considered pure. This is actually an example where Rashi comments before you have the question to obviate the question. Meaning when the child is reading the Pasuk, he does have a question when he reads the word Tamima. He knows pure, right, like he can't have a mum. Then he reads the next four words, that's your Aimba mum, and he's like, wait a minute. But Rashi here, since the commentary, the word that's taken out of its simple context, excuse me, is the first word Tamima, and not the following phrase, that's your Aimba mum, he explains it on Tamima and removes the question we would have when we read the next four words. The third Pasuk. So here you take this perfectly red cow, which has no blemish, which a yoke was never put on it, meaning the cow could not have ever done work. If it did, that also disqualifies it. Give this cow to El Azur the Kohen. He has to take it out of the camp. And it should be shechted. Someone should shecht it in his presence. So the first comment Rashi says is El Azur, meaning El Azur was not the Kohen Gadol. Aharon. El Azur is the son of Aharon. He was a skan queen, the like second in command, if you will. So why does it say to Eliza? We would think such a great holy act would be to the Kohen Gadol. So Rashi says, no, specifically why Eliza? That's specifically the mitzvah. The mitzvah, in other words, cannot be done by the Kohen Gadol. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't like, well, let's give Eliza a turn to do something. Specifically, we don't want the Kohen Gadol. And actually, at that point, we don't want any other Kohenim. We want specifically the Sgan Kohen, the second in command, to do this mitzvah. That is true for the first power, the power that was made by Moshe in the Midbar. In the Gemara, 
about the other paradumas, there's a dispute about exactly who could be supervising them. But for this specific para, it could not be the Kahin Gadol, and it could not be any other Kahin. At that time, there was one other Kahin, Elazar. I'm sorry, this is Elazar, Isamar. Pinchas hasn't become a Kahin yet. We have Isamar, the other Kahin. We have Aaron, the Kahin Gadol. Specifically, we want to be Elazar, the Skan. I think I just mixed up the names. We have Aaron, the Kahin Gadol. Nope, not him. We have Isamar, another Kahin. Not him. We want it specifically Elazar, the Skan. Next, Rashi, so the Pasuk said, okay, now we got the fact that it's got to be Elazar, the Skan, the second in command. The Pasuk says, take them out of the camp. So Rashi says, what do we mean by the camp? This means outside the three camps, meaning in the Midbar there were three camps, parallel to which, of course, there were three camps in Eretz Yisrael. The grounds of the Mishkan was called Machna Shechina, the camp of Shechina. Surrounding Machna Shechina is where the Levium camped. They camped around the Mishkan. That's called Machna Levium, the camp of Levium. Surrounding the camps of Levium was where all the other Shvetim camped in four groups of three. Three to the north, three to the south, three to the east, and three to the west. That's called Machna Yisrael. So this midst of the para, meaning the shechting and the burning of the para, happened outside all three camps, just like in the times of the Beis HaMikdash. We have the Beis HaMikdash proper, which is the camp of the Shechina. We have the rest of Har Habayis, which is parallel to what was considered Machana Leviyah, the camp of Leviyah. And then we have the rest of Yerushalayim, Yerushalayim within the walls of Yerushalayim, which was parallel to Machana Yisrael, the camp of Yim. So here, Mechutzla Machana, has to be outside all three camps. Then the Pasa continues, Vashachat also Lufanav. And it should be shechted before him. So therefore, Rashi clarifies but obviously, therefore, this means Allah is not doing the shafting, and even a non-kohen, a zar, shalichet, Elazar roya. Elazar is watching the shlita. He's not doing the shlita. So who's doing the shlita? We don't know. So therefore, it could be anyone. So that's why Rashi says, a zar can shecht. Not that a zar had to. A zar here means a stranger to the kohen, because he's not a kohen. Rashi is saying it could even be a non-kayim because we're not specifying who's the shaykhet. In other words, it doesn't really make a difference. The point is the watching of it, the supervision of it, is this kayim, again, the skan. As I told you in future times, it's really a machlekes. One opinion holds that all the other ones were under the kayim gadol, and others hold that, no, the dafka, any kayim could do it, and not the kayim gadol, because for the same reason here, we don't want the kayim gadol to get something. Okay, Pasuk Dalit. So now Elazar takes from the blood with his finger and he sprinkles the blood toward the front of Ayhamayid seven times. And Rashi says, now this of course is talking about in the Midbar where Elazar is standing outside the three camps and he has to be looking and being able to see the front of the Ayhamayid. 
in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, meaning the other eight parajimas that were made, the Kayin is standing to the east of Yerushalayim. East of Yerushalayim, the Kayin was actually on Harzaisim. And he has to put himself that he could see the entrance of the Heichal, meaning the entrance of the structure of the base Hamikdash proper when he's sprinkling the blood. Now the Rambam here clarifies, Rambam actually explains this very explicitly in Hilchos Beis HaBechira, that when they built the base Hamikdash with this halacha in mind, as one of probably the many reasons, they built it in a series of ascending step, 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 because there's a very high gate around, there's actually a series of gates around the, around the whole Harabayas, the whole Temple Mount, and around the whole area of the Beis Hamikdash, and around the, the Azara. There's gates, gates, gates. So Lechaira, the Kohen, who's standing on Harzaisim, if he's eyeballing this area and he wants to see into the Heichal, his eyes can encounter a bunch of very high gates. He'll never be able to see into the Heichal. He won't be able to see into the structure of the temple. But they made this with many ascending steps. You go up so many steps to this level, then so many steps to this level, and then you get to the Ezra's Nashim, and then you go up more steps, and then you get to the Azar of Levim, and then you get to the area in front of the Heichal. So actually, it was exactly structured that when the Kleins and Harazasim, and he's looking straight, his eyesight can go over all the gates and literally go through the entrance of the Beis HaMikdash proper, the entrance of the Heichal, that his eye should be able to see straight to the Preichas, the curtain right in front of the Kleins Kedashim. As he's sprinkling the blood, that should be his kavana. And he's literally eyeing it. Okay? Then Pasuket continues that, again, as the kaihen Elezer is watching, someone is burning the kaihen, the cow, sorry, burning every part of the cow. Pasuk Vav, then the kaihen takes a few things, Eitz Erez, which is cedar wood, and Azov, which is another type of plant, and a piece of wool that was dyed red. And he throws all this into the burning ash of the cat. So all this actually gets burnt in. At this point, the kohen then has to, it says, wash his clothing. This is now, sir, we're on Pasuk Zion. The kohen is washing his clothing. And I'm turning the page of and he's washing his flesh. Then he can come back into the camp. And the kohen's going to be impure until evening. So Rashi says, what does it mean that he can come back into the camp? To which camp is he coming back into? Remember, we said there's three. There's the camp of the Shekhinah, the Ayamayid, the camp of the Leviyah, the Leviyim surrounding the Ayamayid, and the camp of Israel, all the Yidin surrounding the Leviyim. So Rashi explains, when I said he can come back into the camp, I mean to the in their innermost camp, the camp of the Shekhinah, how do I know this? Because in various situations of impurity, most of the time, the only camp people are excluded from the camp of the Shekhinah. The Rashi says, Azav, 
a man, or for that case, it could be a woman, a zava, or a man, who has a certain type of spiritual emission, I mean a physical emission that we view as a spiritual impurity, it's called a zav, a balkeri, someone who has an emission of zara, or a mitzayra, someone who's suffering tzaras, those three are the only categories of people that are excluded from all three camps. Every other impurity, whenever it says they're outside the camp, it means only the innermost camp, the camp of Shina. So therefore Rashi says, so to here, there's no reason this one should be different than the majority, the camp he couldn't get into until nightfall is the camp of the Shechina. The Pasuk said, And the Kohen is impure until evening. So the Rashi says, wait, this Pasuk's out of order. I mean, I don't understand what the Pasuk's saying. The Pasuk says, he washes his clothing, he washes his flesh, he goes into the camp, and then the Kohen's impure until evening goes into the camp, but then he's impure until evening? Rashi says, no, and this is Rashi a number of times uses this principle that we have to invert the wordings of the Pasuk. He's impure until evening, and then afterwards, the phrase that came before it, he can go into the camp. It just logically doesn't make sense any other way. I'm just noticing the time, so I'm taking longer than I said I would, so I will try to do this more quickly. The next Pasuk, Pasuk Chet, 8. Now, what about the person who burnt it? He also has the same issue, meaning he's also impure. He also has to wash his clothing. He also has to wash his flesh. Um, whenever it says wash his flesh, it always means to go into mikvah. And he's also impure until evening. Pasuk Tet. Now, we need another man. We had the Kayin who supervised. We had the person who shechted. We had the person who burnt. And now we need another man who's pure, to gather the ash of the cow. And the Pesach says, place it outside the camp, the Machum Tahar in a pure place. And we have to keep this because this is the ash that's going to give purification. So Rashi has a long Rashi here explaining where did they keep this ash. And remember, in all of our history, they only made nine paradumas. And they always had, they never ran out of the ashes. We don't have any such metzias. That means for over a thousand years, the ash of those nine cows sufficed. So they obviously very, very sparingly used a very little bit of ash, and they were very careful where it was. So where was it? The Rashi explains that they split it into three parts, and each part had a different function. I'm just going to do this quickly now that I'm looking at the time. One part was put in Harzasim. One part was given to the Mishmaros. The Mishmaros means that the Kahinim basically divided, instead of all the Kahinim, all the time, being in the base of Mikdash, and then like, well, who gets to do what? So they divided it into 24 watches, based on the 24 families of the Kahinim that, of course, eventually developed. The division took place, I believe, in the time of David Shlomo HaMelech, when they did this, that every week, another family's Mishmar, another family got a chance. Basically, over the year, you had like two times where you had one week each of being a Kohen serving in the base of Mikdash. So, the watch, whoever was the group of Kohenim that were then serving, they got a portion. They got the main portion, actually, because that's the portion that was used. There was a portion on Harzasim, and there was a portion in the Chayel. The Chayel is the area immediately outside the wall of the chutz there, of the courtyard of the base of Mikdash. 
the Y. We have it in three sections. So the area for the, the, the Mishmaros, the watches of the Kayanim, they were the ones that had the ash that was used, meaning the ash was used if someone's impure from the impurity of contact with a dead body. So if someone became impure and they needed to be sprinkled, as we're going to learn twice on the third and seventh day, they had to go to the Kayanim of the Mishmar, of that Mishmar who gave them from the ash. That was the obvious one. Why do we need in Harazasin? So in the future, those Kohanim, or perhaps Rashi here says Kohanim Gedolim, so Rashi's following here the Deya, that after this one, all the other Paros were supervised by the Kohen Gadol, which is a lot of commentary on, but we don't have time for it. Um, so all future Kohanim Gedolim that get impure by supervising the next Paraduma, they are purified specifically by those acid on a Harzasim. And why in the chayel? So that's because Pasuk says in Pasuk here, it should be for the Jewish people as, as, as a safeguarding. So we need a portion of the ash not being utilized in a functional capacity to purify, which was a function of the ash of the Mishmaros and of even the function of the ash and Harazasim. This is just for the sake of being there. And that's the ash in the chayel. The passage goes on to say, lemein nida, for waters of sprinkling. As Rashi explains, nida means sprinkling, and Rashi brings chupsotim to prove that. And then the passage says, chatas hi, it is a chatas. Of course, the question is, what do you mean it's a chatas? This isn't chatas, this is a paradum. So Rashi gives two answers to what does it mean it's a chatas, not chatas. First, Rashi says, chatas is from the word chitoi, which means to purify. It is purification, which is what the Baraduma's ashes were. And then the second answer, but then, of course, a person would say, well, then why, why is it called chatas? Chatas implies like a carbon chatas. So Rashi gives a second answer, which there must be some connection here between the Paraduma ash and the carbon chatas. It's just like the carbon chatas, the Baal, the person who's offering the carbon gets no benefit from it. I mean, meaning it gets burnt to Hashem in a portion the Kayan gets. So, so to hear the person going through this ceremony of the ash of the Paraduma is not getting any personal benefit from it, unlike other carbonos, which obviously you're eating the meat, etc. Okay? So here, this person, remember, we said this very pure person had to gather the ash and place it in these three places, plus the kid says, and then by doing that, he becomes tummy and he's impure until evening. So what's interesting is to notice the pattern that every single person basically involved in the process of creating the ash of the para aduma to purify, everyone becomes impure by their involvement in the process, which of course is part of the fact that it is a chayk. Okay. So that was the first time I'm explaining the creation of this ash. The next sukkim, until the end of our portion today, is explaining so how does it use, what happens. So in the 11th Pasuk, so here we have anyone who touches a corpse of a human is impure for seven days. And on the third and seventh day of his impurity, he gets this waters mixed with the ash sprinkled on him to create his purity from the most impure thing possible, a human dead body. And if he doesn't do this, the public says he won't be pure. 
the Rashi explains when it says, Hu yishate boi, he should purify himself with it. The it here means the ash of the par, and one can, the reason why Rashi has to clarify is because boi is masculine with it, not bo, and a para is feminine. So Rashi is clarifying, we're talking about the ash, the afer. And afer is also masculine, so bo masculine, afer masculine, we're safe. The next pasuk, pasuk yedimo, whoever touches a dead body, a human soul who died, and does not purify himself, he makes the Mishkan impure. He will be cut off from Qal Yisrael because he didn't go through this purification. The impurity is still on him. So the question is, why does the Pasuk say, B'meis, a corpse, a dead body. Why do I need the term B'nefesh Adam with the soul of a human? So Rashi gives two answers. One answer is because a mace, you might think, also means an animal that's dead. An animal that's dead does not require you to go through this purification. If a person came in contact, if a person touched the carcass of an animal, he does have some impurity, but he doesn't need a seven-day waiting period, and he doesn't need the sprinkling of the ash and waters of the parajuma. Another explanation Rashi says is that the nefesh could imply the blood because it says hadam hu nefesh. So if someone didn't literally touch a dead body, but they touched the blood, which actually doesn't mean a lot of blood, it's like three and a half ounces of blood, that came from a corpse, they already would require this purification. That's benefesh, to imply the soul, the life, which is the blood that's transmitting the soul energy. Oh, you touched the body. Well, you had contact with the blood that came out of a dead body. You also have to go through this whole seven-day impurity, twice sprinkling. Then it says he made the Mishkan of Hashem impure. How did he make the Mishkan of Hashem impure? What do you have to do with the Mishkan of Hashem? Zerashi says if he goes into the Azura, if he goes into the courtyard without the sprinkling, even if he went to mikvah, he could say, wait, I waited seven days, and I went to mikvah. Come on. What was you saying, though? If you didn't have this sprinkling twice, once on the third day and once on the seventh day, not only are you impure, you're carrying on your impurity to others. As Rashi says, O Tomaso Bo, his impurity is still on him, meaning... He he did try to impure. He tried to purify himself. He waited seven days. He went to mix up, but no, oid still, despite everything you did, even though you went to mix Rashi says, you still have this impurity because you did not have the sprinkling. The next pasuk pasuk Yudalid, This is a teaching regarding any person that says that dies in a tent. Whoever enters the tent. And here we're not saying you have to even touch the dead body. You're just in the room of the dead body. Whoever's in the tent is impure for these seven days. So it means that whoever entered the tent, whoever walks into this tent. So Rashi explains, it doesn't mean the tent always, for the rest of the life of the tent, if you walk into it, you become impure. It means as long as the corpse is still in the tent. The next pasuk, the 15th pasuk, if you have an open vessel that doesn't have a cover fastening it, it absorbs the impurity 
if it's also in that tent. Again, it doesn't have to be in a tent. It means a room where there is any enclosed structure where there's a dead human body, there's this impurity. So if there's a vessel that's not completely sealed, as Rashi explains, it says an uh, open vessel. So Rashi says we're talking about an earthenware vessel, a klicheres. A klicheres does not absorb tumor from the outside. So even though it's in this enclosed structure with a corpse, but it only gets impurity from the inside. So as long as it has a very, very tightly sealed cover, it's not going to become impure. And you could take it out of the room, the structure with the corpse, and actually use it, no problem. But if it's not covered with a cover that's completely fastened, the air of impurity went inside, and then it becomes, excuse me, impure. And then Rashi says, seal, and seal, Rashi explains, means attached. He says that's in the Arabic language. Seal means attached. Um, a bit of a chlaikis on if he means aravi or ivory, because it's just transposing one letter. Does he mean in the Arabic language or in the Hebrew language? And then Rashi gives an example, which obviously is in the Hebrew language. It's an example from another Pasuk in Chumash, Naftule Elokim Niftalti, which is the idea of joining. Okay, the 16th Pasuk. Anyone who touches in the open field any, any corpse, someone who was killed by sword, someone who died, a bone, a grave, is impure for seven days. So Rashi questions, why do we have to say in the open field? Meaning, we understand we're not talking about the tent anymore. Why do we say in the open field? Rashi says, our rabbinim say these are extra words. So they're adding things where you normally, outside a structured room where the person passed away, where you'd find the dead in the field, which is, Rashi uses the word goilo and daifek, which means the, I mean, it's a little bit of machlek is what those words mean, but simply this means the pieces that connect to the body, meaning it's mostly goilo, Rashi says, is the board covering the body in the grave, and daifek is the board at the side, Others disagree. Taisos disagrees. Says Gailo is a tombstone. Dofik is a smaller stone. Stone. What we mean is any of these structures that are around the body, the way the body is buried. So even though you're not touching the corpse, but you're touching the tombstone, you're touching the boards, already you would absorb the same impurity and have to go through this exact same period. Obviously now you can understand I'm sure everyone here has heard that all Jews today are tummy Tomas mace, are impure with the impurity of a dead body, and we're like, what? I never touched a corpse in my life. Okay, but if you understand now all the ramifications of how one absorbs this impurity, then you can already see how truly all of us probably have had this type of contact of impurity. So that was the first explanation that Rashi gives, which is interesting because Rashi first begins with this Rashi, and then Rashi usually his style is opposite, but we don't have time to explain it. And then Rashi gives a more shocked explanation, which Rashi is explaining why we have these extra words, to bring out the point that when we, we've said before, when you went into the tent, 
meaning the contained area where a corpse is found, just walking into that tent or room or structure or house made you impure. But when it's in Pnei when we're not in a structure, when we're outside in the open, like in a field, you don't become impure unless you literally touch the bone or the grave or the body. And otherwise, you could be an inch away from it. You're not observing the impurity. And then the last pasuk of the chitas of today. So then this unclean person goes to this purification, has the ash with the water sprinkled on him to become pure. That was Seyit Chita. This was our experimental first time. I'm sorry. I did it for about a half an hour instead of the 15 minutes, I thought. Please give me your feedback. You can feel free to put it on the broadcast because nobody will hear it besides our administrator, Jabba, who will then forward it to me. Nobody else will be bothered by your WhatsApp so you don't have to feel like, oh, I don't want to tell people what I'm thinking because they might criticize it and anyway they'll start harassing me for extra beeps. Nobody will hear it. Let me know from the people that are listening, should I make it shorter? Should I stop after 15 minutes and not go through all the Rashi's? Did I do them in a more brief format? Did I use too much Hebrew and therefore you can't really follow anyway? Let me know what works for the people that are listening. Thank you so much. And for me, good talk.